All right, our Bible reading this morning comes from the first book of the New Testament. It's called the book of Matthew, or the Gospel, the Good News of Matthew. And what I want to do is I want to read from chapter 12, beginning at verse 9. I'm going to read just through verse 21. You'll also see the passage um, before you and uh, on the overhead. And during the sermon itself, I'm going to draw your attention to a few other scriptures that will be on the overhead as well. But if you have your Bibles, you can... Uh, Turn with me to those passages as well. This morning, we're going to look at the heart of Christ and the heart of his ministry. And if I would would ask you the question, if you're somewhat familiar with Jesus and familiar with the Bible, if, if someone asked you, what do you believe really is inside the heart of Christ? And really, what really gets at the heart of his ministry, what would you say? Probably not the easiest question to ask. A lot of things kind of flow through your head. But we're going to look at part of the heart of Christ, in the very center of the heart of Christ, which is a heart of genuine, genuine compassion. Genuine compassion. We see this here in the passage. Let's let's read beginning at verse 9. He, meaning Jesus, went from there and he entered their synagogue. A synagogue is a Jewish place of worship. And a man was there with a withered hand. Now, kids, um, you wonder what like what, what is kind of a withered hand? Maybe it was something like this. You know, sometimes you'll see people like that where this hand might be okay, but this hand like that, and they can't really use their hand very well. And so here we have a man who is in need, right? What's going to happen to him? Well, let's read on. And they asked him, that is, they asked Jesus, that is the religious leaders, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? And he said to them, which of you has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out. And it was restored. So what did Jesus do? He healed this man. And it was healthy, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out, that's the religious leaders, and they conspired against Jesus how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. And I want to draw your attention, especially the verses 20 and 21. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Kids, I want you to take a look at verse 20, or just listen to me. Jesus draws upon two images here that are very simple, and this is kind of classic Jesus. He takes two he draws upon simple things in the creation, the world around him, and then he, he draws a lesson from it. And these two images that we have here are a reed. You go, what's a reed? Hmm? 
I'll explain that a little bit later. And then a wick. When you think of a wick, you think of like this and a candle. And I'll draw your attention to the candle a little bit later on in the sermon. But I'm going to set some things forward before I do that. Now, when you, when you take time... When you take time to read a passage like this, you, you've got to, and pa- this is what pastors have to do when they prepare sermons. They just can't launch into the original languages and launch into commentaries and all that. Usually the best thing for a pastor to do is the best thing for you to do, and that is just chew on it. Just think about it. Don't get involved in all the technicalities. Think about those things that immediately jump, jump out at you and, and chew on those things and not feel guilty after 20 minutes that you haven't consulted commentaries or the languages. Just read it. Just read it. Let it sink in. And when you let this passage sink in, you have these two images before us, but also what, what, what happens is that there are, are actually three words that kind of are worth chewing on. The first one is healing. So the healing is mentioned in the passage. Justice is mentioned in the passage, and hope. And Jesus has come to bring all three. They get at the heart of his ministry. So, the first one is healing. Healing. Jesus Christ has come to bring healing. Of restoration. The word, the word healing comes from, from a word in the original language from which we get our English word therapy. So, if you've ever gone to therapy either for emotional issues or psychological issues, or even for physical issues. Like I've gone to a therapist in the last couple of months regarding some issues with my hands. When I go to the therapist, what is he doing? He's working on my hands to provide what? Healing. That's what Jesus Christ has come to do. It's at the center of who he is, and it's the center of his ministry. And then there's also the word justice. Now, a lot of times when you and I think of justice, you think about perhaps if you've been here for our afternoon service, we've been going through a document that's part of this church called the Heidelberg Catechism, and we've been looking at the justice and the mercy of God. And if you read books on justice, you see that there's primarily two kinds of justice. is what we call retributive justice and restorative justice. Retributive justice has to do with God's punishment upon human sin in this life as well as the life to come. That's why we all need to flee to Jesus, and that's why Christians are always talking about Jesus. But there's also what we call restorative justice. And restorative justice is where the Bible teaches us that God is not partial. He doesn't play favorites. But for those who are in need, and for those who repent, and those who draw near to Jesus, God's fairness, His love, His restoration comes upon them. We see that here in this passage. I'll fill that out a little bit later. And then finally, there's that word hope. Christianity and Jesus is about providing hope for those of us or those whom God brings to us who feel that they are simply without hope, that there's nowhere else to go. That's all, that's, that, all of this I just explained is the gospel. It's what we call good news. Now, without further ado, what I want to do is I want to draw you to the context here. Let's fill this out here. So here Jesus is on the scene, and people are wondering, who is this Jesus? Is he the long-awaited Messiah, or is he not? Now, if you take a look, if you put that up on the screen, chapter 11, verses 1 through 6, we read this. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, that is, John the Baptist... 
You remember, he was the forerunner of Christ. He prepared the way for Jesus. He's in prison at this point. He sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come or are we to look for another? In other words, are you the Messiah or aren't you? Are we supposed to look for someone else? And Jesus answered them and he said, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. Now, it's interesting that they're wondering, hey, are you the Messiah, are you not? And Jesus knows how he responds. This is typical of Jesus. He doesn't always respond in a direct way. He didn't say, yes, I am the Messiah, or no, I'm not the Messiah. He says this, you go tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and so on and so forth. In other words, Jesus is saying, my acts, my ministry declares exactly who I am. Who am I? As he says elsewhere, I'm the great king and have come to bring the restorative power of my kingdom. Again, that's good news. And then Jesus says, and blessed are those who are not offended by me. And, you know, I think for someone reading the Bible for the first time or they're reading something like this, why would Jesus say something like that? He's doing all these good things. He's helping blind people. He's helping deaf. He's helping mute people. He's even raising the dead. How can, how can anybody be offended by that? But people were. A number of people were, including the religious rulers of the day known as Pharisees. The Pharisees actually were um, offended by Jesus. They were offended by his claims because they didn't believe that he was the Messiah. They were offended by Jesus's what they perceived to be a complete disregard for their traditions, for the religious traditions. They were offended uh, by Jesus because of his stark calls to repentance. Jesus, you need to repent. And they're like, why, why, what do we need to repent of? Maybe you should repent. And finally, they were, they were upset with Jesus, and they took offense at him because of those whom he, here's the thing, those whom he associated with. He associated with Gentiles. Now, when you read that in the Bible, Gentiles, the word in the original is kind of goyim. They're the, they're, think of dirty people. They're dirty people. They're non-Jewish people. We would call them maybe some of the, what we call, um, what people might view as those who are unchurched. They're not part of us, Right? So Jesus would hang with the Gentiles, with what we call the unchurched. Um, Jesus associated with the demonized, those who were demon-possessed. It's interesting, when Jesus started his ministry, it's like he kicked up a hornet's nest, and all of that which was evil in the world just because it was stirred up. He hung around with the demonized. He hung around with the Gentiles. He hung around with adulterers and prostitutes and tax gatherers and also the disabled. You know, I might be disabled. These are people who are struggling, something either emotionally or spiritually or physically, people who are blind and lame and, and deaf and people who are demonized and, and, the, and the poor also, the poor. And you say, well, why? Why would these religious leaders have a problem with Jesus hanging out and healing the disabled? Here's the reason why. Because these religious leaders believe that those who are blind, those who are deaf, those who were demonized, this was all a result of various sins that they committed in their life. And now they're paying the price for their sin. Why are you healing them now? It's a common understanding at the time. You know your Bibles in John chapter 9. Jesus is presented with this blind man. And, and 
And these Pharisees are saying, well, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? It's a messed up theology, in other words. So here, here what we need to understand here. Jesus was surrounded by a form of what we call religious conservatism that on the outside seemed to be so right. They had everything in order, but, it, but there was so much that was wrong with it. They had all their T's cross and all their eyes dotted they were all about decency and good order and yet there was something wrong something wrong with the heart they were they were distant and they were cold and they were dispassionate to those who were truly in need and this is why my friends, this is why when, when people were in need, they didn't go to the Pharisees. They went to Jesus. Because they knew if they went to Jesus, they would not be ignored. Worse still, would they not be kicked to the curb? Let me give you two examples of that. And then I'm going to draw attention to this, these images of the reed and the wick. Luke chapter 15, if you'll put that up there on the screen. We read this, now the tax collectors and sinners, that's that sinners is a kind of broad term for, for people who are kind of generally living immoral lives, okay? Now the tax collectors and these sinners were drawing near to hear him, that is Jesus. Now, I don't know if you know this, but when, when people are first drawn to the church, I've heard this many occasions, in fact, I remember one lady in Toronto, my first pastor, he said, I invited her to our church eventually after talking with her. She says, I, I, can't, I can't go there. I said, well, why is that? Because, that? because that's where holy people go. Right? As, if, as if somehow we're not dealing with sins ourselves. But that's the concept. But, but here, we see the tax collectors and sinners didn't think that about Jesus. They didn't say, well, you know, he's holy, and man, we, I don't even get near him. No, they were drawn to him. They were drawn to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes, they were grumbling, were saying, this man actually receives sinners and, notice, eats with them. Now, that, that word receive in the original language, it sounds like this, pros decomai, which, which is different from the normal word for receive. It really connotes or draws our attention to table fellowship. And that's what we see here. He's actually eating with them. So Jesus, they come to him and Jesus is not just interacting with them and then he says, you know what, I'm sorry, I got to go. He actually takes time to sit down, he shows hospitality, he sits down and he eats, he actually spends time eating with them. Table fellowship is just different from conversation. You're, 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 you're connecting with each other in a more intimate way. In other words, to put it simply, he's investing in them. That was Jesus, not the Pharisees. They don't get near him. Now, Matthew chapter 9, if you put that, uh, Ava, guys, you put that on the screen. I want to read this very quickly. Jesus went throughout all their cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and affliction. So this is the gospel going out, the good news of Jesus, both in word, he's preaching, but also in deed, right? When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So again, the Pharisees were not even, they were not only providing distance between themselves, but they were actually harassing these people, those who were helpless. 
But, but look at the, look at the, this is where we get the heart of Jesus before us. What, what is in the heart of Jesus? It's compassion. And the word here is, is dotted throughout the New Testament. It's the word splogsna. It sounds funny, doesn't it, kids? Splogsna. Splogsna is a particular type of compassion. We could say it's a compassion that comes from the bowels. It comes from the gut. That's the kind of heart that Jesus has. And so he's drawn to these people, and he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are so few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Minister to these people. On my behalf, minister to them. Now, isn't this what we see in our passage by the way, before we look at that, I want to draw your attention just to one quote in this regard. And then we're going to get back to our passage from uh, Matthew chapter 12. It comes from a man named Dane Ortland from a book called Gentle and Lowly. I'm not sure we have it on the book table there. We may or may not. If we don't, we need to get it. Get that book, Gentle and Lowly. It gives you an insight into the heart and the compassion of Jesus. Dane writes this. He says, time and again, we see that is the morally disgusting the socially reviled, the inexcusable and undeserving who do not simply receive Christ's mercy, but to whom Christ most naturally gravitates. He is, by his enemy's testimony, the friend of sinners. Why is that? Because his heart refused to let him sleep. Sadness confronted him in every town. So wherever he went, he spread the contagion of his cleansing mercy again as a friend of sinners. The Pharisees are doing this, Jesus is doing this. They're like magnets, he's drawn to them. All right, now we come to our passage, Matthew chapter 12, verse 15 and following. And you'll see in this passage, now, now this part of the passage of the Bible is found in what we call the synoptics. I don't know if you ever hear that word, but the synoptics are Matthew, Mark, Luke, just the first three. And, and, and this passage shows us its importance, or is recorded in all three of these synoptic Gospels. But this is the only passage in the Gospel of Matthew where Isaiah 42 is mentioned, is drawn upon. Now, Isaiah lived about 600 years before Christ, and what he's prophesying about is the coming of Jesus many centuries later, right? And when he gives us this prophecy, he gives us an insight into who Jesus is and what he's come to do. So who is Jesus? He's the chosen servant of God. He's empowered by the Spirit of God to be an agent of generosity, compassion, and grace. And then we come to verses 20 and 21 where we see his ministry. And I want to focus on this. I want us to let, the, let these concepts roll around in our head a little bit. Verse 20 and 21, a bruised reed... He will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory, and in his name, the Gentiles, the non-Jews, the unchurched, the unconverted, they will actually hope. They will hope in him. Now, kids, why don't you listen up? A reed, you know, what, what is a reed? When, when, I was a, when I was a kid growing up in the Midwest, United States, um, it was farm country, Although my dad taught at a, at, a, at a college, and I was involved with the college, we were kind of a, we were called college brats. Um, actually, grew up in, in um, farm country, knew a number of farm kids. And sometimes we'd go out in the country, and we would grab 
Well, this is not technically a reed, but imagine something like this, but it's, it's much thinner. And sometimes we take that reed and it would be like a tall grass like that. We take it, maybe you guys done this, you know, you kind of rub it in your hands and do what? Right, you know, it makes whistle noises. Just do that as a kid. Well, when you think of a reed, think of like a reed by a riverbed. Something like this, but again, much thinner. And when a reed is healthy, it stands straight up. But if a reed is bruised, as we see here in the passage, it's kind of like this, it's bent over. It's not completely broken off, but it's, it's, it's bent. Not, it's, in other words, it's not a real healthy reed. Okay? It's not destroyed, it's just bent. Now, Jesus also talks about, since these props are here anyway, um, about a wick. And kids, you know, like this is, this is a wick here. Now, obviously, this is not a real candle, but it gives you an idea, actually. So if this is a real candle and it's on fire, right, it's got a flame, and I go, what's it going to do? It's going to smolder, right? You see that smoldering? It's like where that, that uh, smoke comes out. Now, if I blow out the candle, it's no longer on fire, is it? You don't have the flame anymore. But would we say if you blow out the candle right away, is it, is it out? No, because you can see this. Maybe you can see that the wick is still burning, and if this is a real candle, you would have the smolder come out. Now, what, what is, remember, Jesus would oftentimes take things of the creation and he would draw illustrations from these things and spiritual points from these things. What's the point with a bent reed or a smoldering wick? The thing is, is that with the reed, it's bent, it's bruised. It's not destroyed, but it's not healthy either. Same thing with a candle. It's not on fire, but it's not completely out either. And Jesus draws upon those two concepts to teach us that there are people like that, and maybe some of us are like that here this morning, where we would say, I don't know, I, I, I'm, I'm not spiritually dead, but I'm not exactly walking close with God either. I'm kind of, I'm not dead, but I'm not in the most healthy state. That's Jesus' point. And what does our text tell us? Does Jesus write these people off and say, would you please just get your act together? Jesus bends over, as it were, to take them where they're at and to bring them where they need to be. And that's what the church does on behalf of Christ when it's healthy. I want to give you a quick, to give us a little bit of breathe here, I want to give you a quick example of that. I have a dear friend in Phoenix who I met about five, six years ago. His name was Jesse. Just stick with me here because it really illustrates this, this uh, verse 20 well. Jesse uh, came to us um, completely from what we call the outside, came to church one day with this girl in our church named Carrie. Carrie worked at a bank. Jesse came in. He was semi-homeless, and uh, he got to know Carrie, and they, they just started dating. And, you know, it's one of these situations where as a pastor, you're thinking, you know, this is not the best situation. Carrie, you're a Christian, and it, he's not really a Christian at this point. You understand that, right? We're not, you got to be really careful about it. But you, I just thought, I'm not going to bring that up immediately. I'm going to let this play out just a little bit. And so I thought, here's an opportunity. So Jesse actually came to church with her one Sunday, and I, and I met him afterwards. He's kind of a, he's a big guy. He's really tall and big built. And I said, uh, so I got to know him a little bit, and, and I said to Jesse, you know, as I do with a lot of newcomers, I'll say, hey, you want to go out for coffee? He 
sure, he's a very unpretentious man. And so we went out for coffee, and we shared each other's stories, and I realized, I mean, this is who he was by his own admission. And I know him. He would say, I don't care. Go ahead, tell the people. He says, he was a gamer. All he did, he worked at a grocery store, came home, played games, and he smoked pot. I mean, a lot of pot. And when we first were meeting together, he continued to smoke pot. And I said, you know, first of all, it's not healthy. And secondly, at least in Arizona at the time, it says it's illegal. But I didn't push it with him. And then I said to, to Jesse, I said, here's the thing. Would you mind meeting together, talking about Christianity, talking about Jesus? He goes, sure. You know, so we started meeting. And I said, we're going to meet for about five or six weeks. And we're going to talk about who God is, who we are, what sin is, who Jesus is, why we need Jesus, and why we need the church. So simple things. Okay. So we met together, and the first time we met, he told me that he did not grow up in a Christian home. He grew up with a, with a single mom, and that when, when his biological dad discovered that his mom was pregnant, he kicked her in the belly as hard as he could to get rid of that baby. But in God's grace, Jesse was born into the world. He lived with a girl for a number of years, but that relationship soured. He was smoking dope. He was a gamer. His life was empty. But we met together, and to make a long story short, um, the Lord began to work in his heart. And I went over a little booklet that I put together, 22 question answers regarding the things that I just mentioned regarding the Christian faith. And, and then he said, I think... I." It, I sense he was drawing near to the Lord, and he wanted to become part of the church. I said, well, okay, well, we have a process for that. So I want you to go through this book, and we're going to memorize these question and answers together. You want to memorize them the best you can. He said, okay. So he did that, and I said, then we're going to meet with the elders of the church, what we call the shepherds of the church, leaders of the church, and they're going to examine you on the basis of these things. I says, okay, and he did that, and it came about to the point where he professed his faith in Christ in a service, and in a service like this, because he's so tall, and this is what I do with the people who, who experience adult baptism, he went down on his knees, and he was baptized. For the sign and seal of the covenant relationship with his God. And he is a proud father with Carrie of two children today serving the church. Now, what does the Bible say? If anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We can never count people out. We can never count people out, even though they look hopeless. And I just want to add this one final thing. That goes for us. It goes for people in the church, and it goes for people outside the church. Okay? Sometimes you have people in the church who have come under what we call official discipline because of some unrepentant big sin, okay, usually. They're unrepentant, so they're disciplined out of the church. And what do we do with these people? Sometimes we just kind of count them out. Or sometimes what you have is you have undisciplined people, but they're barely hanging on. They do just enough to keep the elders off their backs, Right, So they come once a month, once every two months, and they're kind of like the candle. They're not on fire, but they're not quite completely out either. They're smoldering. And it's very easy for elders to just kind of do this, you know, and you can't, not on the basis of the ministry of Christ. Sometimes you have people in my position, you have pastors, you have elders who are struggling, right, 
and it's in, and I just received this sad report this past week of, a, of a, a pastor in a very conservative Presbyterian denomination. He went to the same seminary that I did. And it's all public knowledge. I will not give the name, but he was caught doing things with a 14-year-old girl that he should not in Uganda, in Africa, and now he's facing possibility of 30 years in prison. Who remembers these guys? You know, they, these, these type of individuals are, even though they repent, they, are, they, are, you know, they, they cannot continue in the ministry anymore. Once those pastors are gone, who remembers them? Who ministers to them? You know? Um, there are people who grow up, in, in, and maybe you may be one of these. I grew up in a Christian family, but you know what? I was, I was emotionally abused by my dad, or I was physically abused by my dad, or I was sexually abused by my dad, or a cousin, or an uncle, or what have you. Or, or I've been involved in substance abuse, man, I'm not, I'm not happy with it, I'm kind of ashamed by it, and then, and then you, you, you feel like Hester Prynne, right, in uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne's uh, novel, where she's got this big A for adulterer, you know, and she has to bear that with her all her life. Well, people like that. What do you do with those people? You just write them off? Jesus didn't. Jesus ministered to these people. And the reason why he ministered to these people is because he saw possibilities in people that sometimes we don't see. And he understood that but for the grace of God go any one of us. May I bring out at this point a statement from one of our confessional standards as a church called the Canons of Dort. And for those of you who are theologically inclined, the Canons of Dort address the matter of what we call the five points of the Reformed faith. It deals with the whole issue of the sovereignty of God, which I'm not going to get into now. But there's a very pleasant, beautiful statement in that document where it says this, and as to those who are children of God or who aren't children of God, we could say, we ought to do what? We ought to pray for them and in no way treat them with contempt as if we ourselves are different from them. Man, we're all in the same boat, aren't we? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us need Christ. All of us need Christ. So, I want, to, I want to leave you with this, because we need to draw to a close. How do you consider yourself here this morning? You consider yourself kind of like this? You know, not really straight, but kind of bent over and bruised. Either because of things you've done to yourself, or things that have been done to you. Or do you feel like you're like this candle, not completely out, there's still a little bit of light here, and there's a little bit of smoldering whatever, the smoke is still coming up. You're barely, on, you're barely alive, but you still are. You feel that way. Do you not think that Christ himself knows this about you? And Jesus doesn't say, well, you know what? You're just going to have to live with it and do the best you can. What does Jesus say to any one of us? He says, come, flee to me. Right? Um, in the previous chapter, Matthew 11, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you, say it, what? Rest, rest. I will give you rest. And maybe you're not in that position. However, you know others who are. It may be a child. It may be a relation that you know. It may be somebody you work with who's a bruised reed or a smoldering wick. Don't give up on them. Pray to them. Minister to them. Do what Jesus did. Have them over. Have them over. Have them over for a bite. Talk with them.
and ask that God's grace would work fully in them and would draw them to himself, that, that they might know the joy and the rest that many of us know here. Okay? As always, much more could be said, but for now, let's pray to the Lord. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for sending this kind of Jesus into this world, your only begotten Son, this Son who could condemn and sometimes did, especially the religious leaders of his day, but also someone who had such deep compassion for those who were burnt, those who were hurting, either because of self-inflicted wounds or because of things done to them. Thank you that you are that kind of God for us, but also for the world. Oh, Father, may this be the day that once again we we draw near to Jesus and if necessary, flee to him, grab hold of his robes and plead his mercy and his grace and his wonderful renewal. Lord, you are able to do this. We trust that you will. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.